I think ETH has a key role to play. So evidence and scientific knowledge that is generated in higher education institutions such as ETH has to find its way into the policymaking process so that it can inform policymaking. In this episode, I'm talking with Julie Cantaloo, who formerly worked in the ETH president's office and has remained a friend of ETH Zurich and is now involved in politics and is the co-secretary general of the Green Liberal Party. This is the We Are ETH podcast, and I'm Susan Kish, your host. Julie, both your parents studied at the ETH and the APFL, those great Swiss institutions. Um... But they studied architecture. So how did you end up in political science? Yes, indeed, it is a surprise I didn't become an architect. I guess uh, most people uh, were betting on me becoming an architect. I was always at my parents' offices. Um, I was uh, always fascinated by politics and by policies from very early age on. I I can't remember. I think several topics always uh, were particularly fascinating to me, especially foreign affairs, but also topics around um, research and education policy are are key to me. And um, I'm interested in, in both you know, the game of politics, you know, how do you convince, how do you sell yourself, how, how do you get your message to the people, how do you campaign, but I'm also uh, fascinated by how, how you can shape better policies. You're the, as I understand it, the co-secretary general of the Green Liberal Party. What does a co-secretary general do? We run the operations of the party. That's basically what we do. My colleague and I, we manage the party as an organization. Mm -hmm. Parties are membership-driven organizations, so there are several um, decision-making processes and et cetera, et cetera. But we also have a staff of, of 12 people who work for us and, you know, they... We run the daily operations of the party, we run the campaigns, we run all these kinds of things. And then another key role we have is in communicating the policies and stances of the party. And the Mm -hmm. third key role I would say we have is to advise the president and the board on strategic issues, be kind of spin doctors of the party, let's put it that way. What I'm not hearing, though, is a lot of fundraising. Yeah, no, that's also part of my Oh, it is? <laughs> it's okay. maybe I didn't mention it because it's not my favorite part, to be very honest with you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Swiss system, again, is, is very different from many other European political systems because in Switzerland we have no public funding for parties. No, pu- So the government doesn't give any money to any of the parties? No. Huh. The parliamentary groups, they receive some funding to do the parliamentary work, but political parties as such do not receive public funding, unlike many other European countries. I think the other country I know where it's the case is the UK. The UK also does not have public funding for parties, but in other European countries it is common to have public funding. And so fundraising is key indeed. So where do you raise your funds from? Is it from individuals, corporations? Yeah, both. Both. Foundations? Yeah. No foundations, very little. No, it's mostly, well, we do a lot of crowdfunding. No, we don't have PACs. Not yet. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, no, no, (laughs) not yet. I mean, I don't know if this is something that is going to develop, but uh, currently in the Swiss political system, we don't know PACs. 
in the way we know that in the US. What there is, is given that we do not only run for elections, but we have these public referenda, these plebiscites, four times a year we vote on, on different issues in Switzerland. Oh, when you get those big packets of background yes. information, these 24-page PDFs with charts and graphs. I remember you have, those. You remember those, right? <laughs> I do. Because you you got it. You felt you actually had to read the darn thing. Yeah, because they're complex things you have to vote on, right? Yeah. There we, we build, I wouldn't call them packs, but their coalitions are built between different parties and different organizations, so civil society organizations, and they raise funding for a specific topic in favor or against. Yeah. If I understand correctly, you studied in Spain, in Madrid, in Barcelona, you studied in Brussels, you studied the UK. I am sure, given your interests, you also looked at those political systems in those various countries while you were there. What really struck you in terms of the differences in these different European approaches towards democracy? Yeah, it struck me how unique the Swiss system is. So I felt confirmed that the Swiss system is really quite different because it combines several elements that exist in other countries, like, for example, federalism, similarly to, I don't know, Germany or the US, or, you know, we have a bicameral system with a Senate and a, a Congress. They're not called like that, but we also have two chambers. But then other elements get added to it. Uh, the most famous one is probably direct democracy, the fact that we can uh, vote, we have popular votes on, on nearly anything and everything. <laughs> and then certainly the fact that um, we have what in German is called milit system. So it's an, a non-professional or non-professionalized system. So people who are elected to public office, be it at the local, cantonal or national level, are not paid a salary. They do that on top of their regular work in most cases. Ah, so they really don't have a choice unless they're incredibly wealthy, but to work and do this on the side? More and more there is a professionalization of the political system. You know, people have jobs in the political sector. But at the local or at the cantonal level, people can be dentists or pharmacists or teachers or whatever. And they do that on the side. And do you view that as a strength or as a vulnerability? It has great advantages. Like many things, it's not black and white. You know, things are incredibly complex. And the more you know about something, the more you start doubting about your own views. You know, is it good or is it bad? I mean, the big advantage is the, the, the fundamental idea behind it is that people are still linked to real life. They know what hmm. people really care about and mm -hmm. what the challenges of, of people are. And they are linked to society and close to, to people's worries. Uh, the inconvenient clearly is that at the national level, it is due to the increasing pace and complexity of policymaking and lawmaking, it is nearly impossible to uphold a job next to a political career. It's very difficult. Because you have to meet with your constituents. Yes. You have to deal with your colleagues. You have to manage campaigns. And you have to be in commissions, you know, like most of the lawmaking is made in commissions and there are many conversations going on. And also what is very specific to the Swiss parliament, the, our, our parliamentarians do not have staff. They don't have staff. No, they have very 
a small budget to have uh, some support, but they don't have, I don't know, five or six people on staff like it is common for congressmen or huh. senators or like it is the case in the German Bundestag, for example. No. So having seen all these different political systems, did you ever question coming back or was it always inevitable for you to come back to Switzerland? No, it wasn't. Funnily enough, it wasn't. There just came a moment where it was clear that now was the time. <laughs> but it was not inevitable. Uh -huh. I, I, I can't really describe it. I actually had a, a political event that really, well, shook me quite a bit. It was Brexit. I, I was living in the UK during Brexit. And that was a bit of a wake up call. So, oh, this is not the type of political environment I want to, to work and live in. Right. And then I had been abroad for over 11 years, and then came a moment where we were like, okay, let's go home. No, it was a great experience. I would do it again anytime. Uh, I think having lived abroad, unlike other countries, the Swiss don't go abroad as much as other Europeans. I did notice and that. You noticed that too? <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, it's tough with Switzerland, so perfect. I <laughs> That's certainly one part of the answer to this question. The other is, even though Switzerland is great and quality of life is amazing in Switzerland, mm -hmm. there's lots to experience and learn in other countries too. Yep. I enjoyed it so much. It broadened my worldview. It shaped my identity to have lived abroad. Everything I learned there about myself, my own country, about Europe as a, as a continent, you know, it, it was great. I think... I think Too few people in Switzerland go abroad. Interesting. I wonder if there's a policy that could address that, you know, in the educational system. Or... Well, we used to be, and that's something I really, I mean, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's such a pity, but we are not participating in Erasmus anymore. You know, Erasmus is this student yeah. exchange program. Switzerland used to be, I was, I went on Erasmus. I'm a typical representative of this, what we call the Erasmus generation, this generation of people who benefited from this program and went abroad. I went to Madrid, for example. And, and now Switzerland doesn't participate in it anymore because it's a European educational program and because of our tense relationship between Switzerland and the EU. Mm -hmm. We have been excluded from participation at the moment. I hope we can rejoin at some point. And that has a huge impact. And I think we won't see the impact now. We might see it only in a few years. But this was one way how young Swiss could go abroad for a certain period of time and get to meet people with different worldviews and different realities and, you know, identities, learn languages. And it is a part of education, as you put it. Right? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, all the soft skills that you learn and you become much more flexible and understanding, <laughs> I guess. Um, yeah, so that's a pity. That would be a great policy. <laughs> that would be a great policy. When you came back to Switzerland, you started working at the ETH. What exactly was your job? Because the description, which was something like strategic projects or process, strategic development. Yeah, strategic development. Yeah. I have no idea what that means. No clue. It sounds impressive, though. It sounds really cool. It was very cool. I loved it. Yeah. The team I was working at and uh, the president's office was uh, tasked to support the um, board, the Schulleitung, so the board of ETH, and specifically the president, 
in developing the ETH short, middle and long-term strategy. And that goes from teaching to research to outreach, everything. The idea behind it was ETH is this very decentralized, I mean, actually ETH is like a tiny Switzerland, right? With the departments working like cantons. I like this analogy. And so to, to find the, the common ground and develop a common direction in which ETH goes while respecting all this diversity. That was the that was the real challenge behind that work. And also because ETH is a public university, it's publicly funded to a large extent, ETH has to submit uh, four-year strategic plans to the government. So that was also something very concrete that we had to develop. Yeah. You mentioned and described the ETH as a tiny Switzerland, right? Mm-hmm. Sort of a, a small small exercise of that direct democracy, and yet it plays in the Champion League and that the conflicts that come with that. What is the intersection of ETH and questions of policy? Does the ETH have a role in educational policy? How do, how do those worlds intersect? Yeah, maybe I have to open a, a small parenthesis and make a, a distinction that in the English language you can make, unlike in, in German. And <laughs> what I always distinguish between policy for science and science for mm-hmm. policy. So policy for science oh. is the area where you do research and educational policies, create the best possible framework and playing level playing field for higher education to be the best it can be. And the other one, which I find even more interesting, is what I call <laughs> science for policy. So okay. that to answer to your question. Um, I think ETH has a key role to play in that area. So evidence and scientific knowledge that is generated in higher education institutions such as ETH has to find its way into the policymaking process so that it can inform policymaking. It's obviously not the role of science to make decisions. It's the role of science to inform, which is very different. The decision makers are always the policy makers uh, or the people in Switzerland in the end. While you're at the ETH, you ran for the National Council, as I understand it. Um, You decided you were bored and you needed a side job. (laughs) I mean, I'm really passionate about politics. And because I was abroad for such a long time, I was always... Um, politically active. I was a member of political parties in the countries I was living in. I was following closely, sometimes campaigning, stuff like that. But I was never able to run for public office myself. And when I came Mm -hmm. back, it was like, ah, well, now finally I will be able to run. (laughs) Yeah, so I took the opportunity and did that. And No, I wasn't bored. Actually, I remember it was quite a challenge to manage a a campaign and at the same time do good work at ETH. But ETH was great in that sense. They allowed me to reduce, I think, for a few months uh, my work time so I could run the campaign. And how did you do in the campaign? I think I did okay. You know, in Switzerland, we have a proportional system. You have uh, as many mem- people on the list mm-hmm. as you have uh, seats in Parliament for the canton of Zurich, because the constituency is the canton of Zurich. Mm-hmm. So that at the time was 35. And I was somewhere on the second half of the list. And mm-hmm. I was able to move up 
quite a bit because you can vote individuals on the list. The lists are open. We, we call them open lists. So I, I guess that's an indication that I did an okay campaign. I think it was a great experience. I learned a lot about campaigning because I... That was going to be my question. What did you learn from this, right? I've always been thinking that it's... Um it's like racing. You have to be able to lose and get yourself back up and go right back and do it again, but learn each time. Yeah, I think that's a very good analogy. I mean, every campaign is like a race. It is a marathon. You have to start very early with planning and organizing and, you know, the time periods a few months before the, the elections, which is really tough. Yeah, but you learn every time. I, I really like campaigning, actually. I, this is something I enjoy, you know, thinking about what are the key messages? How do I communicate those to my target groups? What are my target groups? What do they care about? What is essential to me? You know, what do I want to tell about me and, and my engagement and my person? And then I also like to be out on the street and and knock on doors and talk to people. Sometimes in winter, it's not that fun. <laughs> You know, Swiss winter, and then you have to campaign. I mean, mm. <laughs> all right, the truth comes out. <laughs> so in your current election, what are the two or three issues that you really want to have impact on? Yeah, so we have elections here on the 12th of February. Okay. From my personal point of view, I think there are three key topics that uh, you asked about three, right? So let's let's try to narrow it down to three key topics. Mm -hmm. I mean, one thing that is very important to know is Zurich is the motor of Switzerland, right? It's, it's the engine. It's a bit of an engine of uh, an economic, but uh, also societal, cultural engine for Switzerland. Mm. And it's a very diverse canton. You have rural areas. You have the biggest city in Switzerland, which is Zurich, uh, at the heart of it. It's an important election also for Switzerland. And I guess the three topics, if I had to narrow it down, is the energy crisis. So how do we secure our energy supply and that it is renewable in the short term, but also in the long term? Because, I mean, the war in Ukraine is having an impact on energy supply also in, everywhere in Europe, including Switzerland. Mm -hmm. And But at the same time, we don't want to give up renewables. On the contrary, we want to speed up the energy transition so that we can be more independent, more secure, and greener. That's basically it. So that's one really key topic people care a lot about. The other one is the economy. Mm -hmm. The Swiss economy and, and the economy in Zurich is doing really well. Mm -hmm. But it is true that unemployment is at a two-decade low. It hasn't been as low in two decades, Wow! Uh, meaning that many companies are struggling to recruit, actually. And at the same time, we have inflation, not as much as in the US, but mm -hmm. we do have inflation. And the fact that the labor market is um, dry, let's put it that way, also drives up the salaries and therefore inflation to continue innovating and reviving the labor market so that we and maybe have more people entering the labor market so that we can really continue on this really good path we're on. It's basically securing the basis for, for future innovation and growth. Okay, so we've got the energy issue, we've got the economic issue. What's number three? And the third one is education. And I'm not saying that because I'm on an ETH podcast. <laughs> Don't worry, I really believe it. <laughs> no. 
it is the key investment in our future that we can do now. And I'm not talking only higher education. I mean education from zero onwards. I mean one-year-olds, uh, so preschool, uh, mandatory school and then of, of course higher education we have to continue investing in this we have a chronic uh, lack of teaching personnel in zurich i'm talking primary and secondary school and then also our our education system could do better in terms of giving opportunities for pupils that come from less privileged families or families that haven't educational equity Exactly. Switzerland isn't doing that well on these indicators. And you are much more likely to go to universities if your parents have gone to university, but the difference is really high compared to other European countries. So how can we have an education system that is more geared towards creating opportunities for everyone? That's interesting, especially given that education is effectively free, higher education. I was recommended to ask you a question about a picture in the ETH faculty foyer. Oh, yes. Do you know what they are talking about here? Yeah, I know what they're talking about. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's my grand uncle's picture, uh, the brother of my grandmother. Yeah. Really? He was the okay. first president of the ETH council. Yeah. When that was created, I don't know the exact year, he became the first president. And uh, yeah, he was an amazing guy, a great guy. Um, I have amazing uh, memories of skiing with him when I was a kid. And, you know, he always had amazing stories because he was a diplomat and he lived abroad for many years. And oh, So he was not an architect? No, not an architect. Also somebody from the policy side of things, exactly. So he became the first president of ETH Rat, and uh, I didn't know that, but I was having one day coffee in the Dozentenfoyer, you know, at the very top of the main building. Mm -hmm. On the top floor, yeah. Yeah, and I was sitting on that sofa, and then I was looking at the picture and thinking, I know this guy. <laughs> <laughs> and then I read at the bottom the name of my granduncle, and I was like, oh, yeah, <laughs> amazing. <laughs> I do know this guy. <laughs> and then it's so, so funny. I asked my parents and then my mom said, yeah, I remember he would because he was the president when my parents were studying at it. Huh? <laughs> And uh, she said that the one, yeah, he used once or twice he came by the rooms where they were, you know, working the studio rooms, uh, because at the time the studio rooms of the architects were still in the main building. Really? That's a while ago in the 70s. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so he came by and said, hello. I didn't know that, but it was funny. I had coffee. I was thinking, <laughs> I know this guy. So, yeah, I'm, I mean, my family, I have lots of, I didn't study at ETH, mm -hmm. but I have a lot of family ties to ETH. It sounds mm. that way. It sounds that way. Well, listen, thank you so much. This has been a great conversation. Um, I have a couple questions that we always like to ask in the close. What is your favorite place to hang out in Zurich? Somewhere along the Limat. I lived in Brussels for many years and I loved it. But there was one thing I missed so much. There was no water in the city which for a Swiss person is unthinkable. No water in the city. What? <laughs> That's true. Geneva, Basel, Zurich, Bern, Lucerne, right? And I love it. It gives so much space in the summers, especially now that, uh, you know, summers get hotter and hotter. It gives coolness to the city and, you know, it opens up space. I love it. Do you have a specific memory from your days working at the ETH? A day 
uh, a lunch, a meeting. Yeah, I have a memory. It's both positive and also, I, I don't want to say sad, but there's some me melancholy in it because the day when uh, Eteha had to shut down because of uh, the COVID crisis. Oh, right. I remember that day very clearly. March 2020. Yeah, and we received an email over the weekend and they told us not to, not to go to the office and stay at home and how they would set up research and education and everything and, and work. And I went to the office. I asked for permission to go to the office to pick up my stuff and, you know, my, my computer and the screen and the keyboard. And there was no one. And it was... That's spooky. Yeah, it was spooky. And it really hit me. Oh, my God. We And the city was empty. I, I met no one and uh, took my things and went home. I mean, Eteha did an absolutely fantastic job. I was very impressed, still am, how well they did, how quickly they switched things, how supportive they were of the staff. And then a final question. What did you want to be when you were growing up? <laughs> a pilot and a doctor. <laughs> And uh, first, first, I wanted to be a pilot for a really long time. That was my dream. And then I, I don't know how I switched, and, and then I was very interested in medicine. Actually, up to a few months before I started my studies, I was still hesitating between uh, medicine and our political sciences. Very cool. Well, listen, thank you so much. Really appreciated this. Great conversation. Yeah, thanks, Susan, for everything. It's really early in the morning on your side of the pond. <laughs> That's all right. The sun has come up now. We're good. Amazing. No, thank you so much. That was great. A great talk. I'm Susan Kish, host of the We Are ETH series, telling the story of the alumni and friends of the ETH Zurich, the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. ETH regularly ranks amongst the top universities in the world with cutting-edge research, science, and people. The people who were there, the people who are there, and the people who will be there. Please subscribe to this podcast and join us wherever you listen. And give us a good rating on Spotify or Apple if you enjoyed today's conversation. I'd like to thank our producers at ETH Circle, Victoria Everson and Claudine Beck, and Ellie Media, Andreas Volschläger. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us. <laughs>